taking refuge. So, one of the earliest expressions of a person's faith, interest in the Buddha was, I take refuge. This is, occurs even before there was Sangha, it's a Tapusa, Palika, very uh, merchants who saw the Buddha, so this amazing beings that I take, I take refuge in the Buddha, in this person. Whatever you are, whatever your teaching is, whatever your path you is, I take refuge in it. We didn't have a lot to say at that particular time. It's a very interesting presentation, just the sense of how much of this is an environment, a shelter, refuge from the storm, and looking to a human being to manifest that and to be that. And I guess we all do that to some extent. We look to our friends for refuge, we go to our loved ones for shelter, for comfort. And we seek an environment. We're not going to get into their skin. We're not going to get into our heads. But there's going to be some kind of environment where we feel, oh, you know, I can find myself. I can relax, I feel safe. Even something pure and beautiful in this environment I could grow in. This is refuge. Later, this also included Sangha, the sense of community of practitioners that also represent that which you could go to for security, for advice, for solace, to be heard, to be gladdened. Do you see, see something that brightens you? Because the most significant uh, sign, most significant learning experience, the book that we read as soon as we're born is the human being. That's the book we study. As soon as we're born, even before we're born, we're kind of getting it. <laughs> that steady heartbeat, that feeling of warmth, you're okay. <laughs> Steady heartbeat. You're getting. You're reading it already. You're getting it. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Life is here. It's wrapped around you. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to become something. You don't have to be super smart. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. That's the environment. And. Uh, of course, as uh, life goes on, we find out the human environment actually doesn't live up to it for very long, here and there. But often it's extremely problematic because of a lack of sila, morality, ignorance, passion, craving. Neurotic stuff happens and we absorb it. We absorb the problematic, even toxic human environment that we arise in. And it affects how we behave. And it also affects 
something more profound than behaviour. It affects, in fact, our, say our internal wiring, the sense of what we feel we should be, so other people will like us or will feel okay with us. We get a bit pushy to try to become something. We get forceful. We feel we should you know, push through when people are not very responsive. We have to shout or push through. Yeah. Or people are deceptive and duplicitous. We're sort of slightly hesitant and reserved about opening up to others. And these get established by our environment, the human environment. Mm-hmm. So these they become kind of signals get established, you know, process and and of course, when we this is all very intimate, so we feel it's all me. I am a nervous person. I am a forceful person. I am a kind of needy person. Well, where do you think that came from? You ever see a, a very newborn, very newborn baby? They're just totally open, totally open, totally bright totally open, they've got no way of doing anything, they can't even hold their head up. It's complete openness. Yeah. Uh, so it's quite beautiful, but also you think, kid, you better <laughs> get, some, get some learning done quick. <laughs> In the right environment, in the sense of the, you know, suitable parenting and so forth, they get the, you know, enough confidence, enough strength to be able to grow the resilience and the capacity and trust themselves enough to deal with what life throws at them. Of course, not everybody gets that. Then problems occur. Yeah. And these then become so, these kind of problems become so established and ingrained. We don't really see beyond what our wiring tells us. Even if it's... It's so intimate, it's so emotionally connected, so psychologically connected, we don't necessarily see beyond it. It becomes the norm. And so of course, you can notice this when you try, you look, you know, certainly noticing other people. Why is he like that? It's completely different from me. Yeah. And they're just being normal, <laughs> like we all are. <laughs> because we're not <laughs> tuning into our own own environment. So how do we get to get some perspective or clear that or operate without getting stuck in it? In fact, begin even perhaps to transform some of the wiring. This is the really interesting possibility. Not just you can have a temporary makeup job and freshen up, you could transform some of the nervousness, the fearfulness, the pushiness, the aggressiveness, or the whatever. Through this process of internalizing, calling meditation, inner work, you could say. Now if we look at the way, (laughs) what we have to really rely upon in that, is the environment is a big feature of that. Now, look at this very obviously, 
the time of the Buddha, all those great sages, they lived in the forest. They deliberately chose to go into the forest. They loved the forest. They trained in the forest. And this is India. So forest is not, it's not like a nice little country park. <laughs> you know, they came to kiosk here and there. And nice paved slabs and signposts. This is the jungle. Right, with snakes, tigers, elephants, poisonous creatures, no lights, darkness, no maps. So in that environment, that's that's the training. What do you do? You not you don't think about dinner. You're not worrying about what somebody said five years ago. You wake up, <laughs> like you know, if you get if you live, live in this forest, you better wake up quick. You know, what do you wake up to? Well, you wake up to profound sensitivity. But also, right now, here and now. Because you know, if you start planning something, you could easily blunder ahead and trip over something. If you start wondering where you were yesterday, you could easily just go around in a circle. You've only got now, you follow your nose. And what, are you lo- what are you looking out for? You're looking out for everything. Your senses are not probing sights or sounds, they're just ready. And what you're really relying upon is those internal readings of anxiety, worry, urgency, fearfulness, signals, flashing lights, something not quite right here. It's gone very quiet. Must be a tiger around. Yeah. What's that crashing? Sounds like the alarm bell rings. Yeah. You have to rely upon this embodied intelligence because that's all you have. Here's your nursery for meditation. <laughs> now you consider that, of course, people lived in villages, but consider a time where there's Writing was for specialists, not used much. Certainly religious teachings were never written down. It was too sacred to stick on a write down. Like a laundry list. And you always put them out through your body. So a person got the tonality, the sound, the facial expression, the presence volume, the humour, they got the whole thing, not just a series of words, they got the whole thing through their embodied intelligence, they picked up. This person speaking from a place of strength, speaking with a heart of kindness, not flustered, not blustering, it goes in. The time when writing is scarce, there's no maps, no signs, no words scrawled all over the place. No flashing lights, no clocks. No six o'clock, no eight o'clock. No bell ringing, time to go to work. Nothing. On that level in which we rely upon, of course. But no phones, <laughs> no GPS, no sat nav. Right? What do you do? You, know, you get up when it's light, 
You did what you need to do while the light's there. End of the light, that's it. <laughs> it's nothing to switch on. And you work according to the rhythm, sense your own embodied intelligence. You talk through it, you work in it. You figure out how to operate the simple tools, like, you know, how to hold up whatever they use for their work. You have to figure out your body, your embodied gadgets, tools. No, that's, that's that's the society we're living in, and then you've got to get together because it's a it's a crazy world out there. You know, so you is very strongly connected to your fellow humans. You've got to get on with each other. That's your environment. But when the Buddha gave his teachings on mindfulness, he said, "You stay in your body." And you move around walking, sitting, standing, lying down, contemplating the body internally, externally, and both. And what do we think that means? We look externally. What's the body externally? We can recognize the skin itself is pretty sensitive. Tunes in. What's around this body? Tuning into that. Internally, go into what's happening in my guts. Is it? Steady, is it calm? How's the pressure? I feel spacious, relaxed, tense, jittery, only half here, numb. That's important because that's your that's your tracking system. <laughs> Get it clear. If you're half numb, it's not gonna do you much good. But if it's clear awake, you've got the best system that you can have because it's intimate. It's immediately connected to your needs, your danger, your joys, and its vitality. And it's alive and it's fresh. It's constantly refreshing itself, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, refreshing itself. Free gift. You don't have to do it. You just have to stop messing it up and trust it. That's your equipment. This is okay. Go sit at the root of a tree. Sit under a tree. There it is. So, sit at the root of a tree. Uh, plenty of trees. Why is that? Because you get a sense of shelter. Got a big, firm trunk behind me. You know, canopy above me. Shelter, safe. And that tree behind becomes something your your body senses, and you feel a sense of upright, strength, ground. Beneath, canopy, safe place. He said, okay, now you're there. Now sense yourself breathing in, breathing out. How does that happen? Just like that. How does the body breathe? Not how do you breathe. How does the body breathe when it's in a safe, grounded environment? You're turning your tracking system towards that. This then, he said, this is the path. This is where I found awakening. So, so immediate, so simple, so uneducated, so non-technical, <laughs> intimate, sensitive, using your tracking system. This is your will. Whoops, it feels like that, that hardening and flaring. This is doubt, that foggy feeling 
the way my energy swirls and sticks in my head. This is restless, it's where I get the itchy, got to do something, life is getting boring, need something, you know, clogged state. These all the things, these arise and your breathing and your embodiment has to go through all that and clear out these residues which we call hindrances. So this is your this is your process. Uh, you learn about them. You learn about how they arise, how they cease, how they don't arise. How if they've arisen, you can release them, you can clear them. What is the source for the arising of a hindrance, of ill will, of passion, sense desire, doubt? What is the source? You get a signal. You get a signal. Yeah. So these signals can be simply external. Yeah. I don't like the look of him. <laughs> a little bit fearful, defensive, and then ill will starts coming in. Or it could be internal. Oh, I remember that person. You know, just feel really grumpy today. Must have got out of bed the wrong side. Just feel really grumpy and irritable. Yeah. Internal. There's something happening in your metabolism that's causing you to feel, you know, stuck or so forth. Well, what's happening is nobody else, no one, can make you feel ill will. You do it by picking up the signal that you then send into your <laughs> into your nervous system. Now this is so spontaneous and such an immediate reflex that we think we question that. Like, no, he really said something rude to me. That's what made me feel angry. He said something rude. He annoyed me. He was really disrespectful. Nothing to do with me. He did it. Well, what happened? Probably he spoke some words. You heard it. Body language was aggressive or certain kind of body language. Right? The body didn't touch you. The words are just words. If I swore at you in Swahili, I don't think you'd be insulted. What happened? The mind immediately, very immediately, got those and translated them into particular, we call them signals or sanya, signs. That means threat. Threat, boom, up comes the defense system, angry, irritable. Once you get the sign, that's what your, your embodied intelligence is attuned to. It doesn't do, doesn't read books. <laughs> so, you know, it, it picks up what the mind, the manas, the attention intelligence, very rapidly, it's a very rapid reflex system, translates that. Because that's what you use in the jungle, when you heard that sound, which tiger, probably even before you got the word, you got that reflex. So yeah, okay. Now you're getting the reflex response from seeing a person or somebody shouting at you. It's actually just a sign. So you pick up that sense of 
impact. Okay. Then rather than I'll deal with him, you know, I'll give him some something back. Who does he think he is? <laughs> She's not going to get rid of that signal because he will now remain my enemy. The signal becomes more established. He's a nasty person. So me lashing back at him isn't going to get rid of the, the irritation. It's going to kind of flare it up. I'll develop that strategy and he will become my enemy. I've actually embedded it. Now, if we hear that, those words, I mean, it sounds threat, irritation. How's that? Okay, now what's happening in my body? Let's just breathe down to my feet, my back, out from my fingertips. No need for that ill will. You know, steady and calm, and I can say, Excuse me, did you say that? Why did you say that? Are you having a problem? Is there something you'd like to inform me about? You're not my enemy. At the moment, there's a misunderstanding, or maybe you're misguided, or something or the other, but you're not my enemy. I'm not establishing that pattern of counterattack. So, by not establishing a pattern of counterattack, you're not building in that reflex. You're not encouraging that reflex. Now you may wonder, well, why not? Why why not have that reflex? Because if your system is doing that, it's a particular quality to that energy. We call it unskillful calm, is a technical thing. But it means it begins to shape your energy system. So defense aggression, tight. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> so if you act upon that, that becomes a strategy. Yeah, you, you can do that. You can probably do it with the drop of a hat. Whether people deserve it or not, you could be a grumpy old man or snappy woman, whatever, uh, with all kinds of enemies. <laughs> but what you wouldn't be, be relaxed, joyful, easeful, good-humoured, flexible, imperturbable, expansive, spacious person, which is definitely possible. The Buddha exemplified it. People got nasty at him. Very nasty. They tried it on his cousin tried to kill him seven times. That's pretty bad. <laughs> didn't, didn't do the ill will. Didn't do the ill will. This is unskillful action, blameworthy action. This man is misguided. He will definitely experience bad results in that. Didn't do the ill will. It was just a defective strategy. So you get a signal, a sign, and instead of that reaction, which is called sankara, volitional urge, it goes the other way, it just goes turn it, turn it the other way, just okay. 
stand my ground, feel my whole body, feel that impact, and begin to widen and spread the tension over the whole form and breathe it out. That's a very simple example. When you begin to understand both the reflex and the sign, and you begin to understand the sign, the signal of that which you find irritating. Because the quality of your will as an energy is such that if you get it going, you can feel angry about the way somebody folds the table napkins. <laughs> Stupid idiots. Or the way somebody coughs. You go on a meditation retreat, really peaceful, serene meditation retreat, you want to kill the person sitting next to you because they cough. <laughs> or they got one of those squeaky jackets, you know, that squeaks every time you sit down. <laughs> or you have an issue over who's, who's getting the right cushion. Get your hands off one cushion. That's my zaffron. <laughs> I'll call you for some peace and quiet. I need that zaffron. Oh, wait a minute. Isn't this like a contradiction? <laughs> And of course, you can project, particularly in silent retreats, people do it with a lot of projection happens. This one looks like she's a real wreck. <laughs> this guy looks like he's psychotic. This one's a control freak. <laughs> or of course, the fantasy, she's in love with me. The way she looked to me shows she's infatuated with me, <laughs> or something like that. Or I'm infatuated with her. Never even said a word to each other. You get these kind of stuff. What's happening? These kind of, you know, the mind is producing all these signs and signals out of its own latent tendencies to do so. So these aren't just signs and signals that are really placed in the, in the environment. They're, your inner environment is expressing itself and projecting externally. So we study these hindrance forms. It's far embarrassing to find out that they're there. But uh, they say don't take it personally. Yeah, the universal forms. You could say they're more or less embedded forms that have to be seen, revealed in a safe environment, you're not going to act upon them, revealed in a safe environment, understood, calmed, penetrated. This is what we call meditative or contemplative practice. And you don't need to sit still to do that, actually. But sitting steady is a very good, you know, baseline to return to. Ideally, you keep this going all the time. Because you've got a body all the time. <laughs> Body's there when you sit down in meditation or not. Your embodied intelligence is there, potentially, all the time. In the Satipatthana Sutta, Buddha's talking about mindfulness, scratching, walking, urinating, doing what you do. You know, you've got the kit, you've got the equipment. <laughs> 
It's built in. But keep reading it. Keep referring to it. Is the encouragement. So, this means actually, as you begin to understand this process of signs, signals, environment, sensitivity, embodiment, you're in it. But remember, your body doesn't really end at the end of your skin. Your body intelligence is sensitive to signs that are happening around you. Look them up. Mind picks it up, sends it in, you tune to that. So all the other sense organs actually trigger this embodied intelligence. You're referring back to this. You're a bang, you're a crash, and you get a alarm signal. Jumps up. And so this is what we follow. Check it out. And it's always that uh, immediate because you can't really do it from a text. There's no text that can cover the nuances of behaviour that occur, the nuances of signals that occur in your living environment. The main theme is get your tracking equipment ready, keep it steady, open it up, keep reading what's going on and learn how to, first of all, discharge hindering effects that you know really throw you into behaviour that later you regret. Grabbing, impulsiveness, reactivity, uh, obsessive preoccupation, just getting lost in your head. This is, this is not clear. But learning to access this and drop the script, drop the story that goes with it, feel the energy, feel the emotion, feel the energy, drop the story, drop the self who appears to be doing it all. Just go straight to the experience. Practice with it. This is, this is the territory. Now this process work really depends on, as I said, environment. It's highly uh, supported and encouraged by a correct environment. What is the environment? We say first environment is uh, sense restraint. Your senses aren't restrained, your energy just keeps running out. You lose the tracking system internally because you're boggling on what you see, hear, taste, touch around you. You're losing access to your own tracking system, your embodiment. You're so fascinated, you're so stirred, you're so eager, you're so, you know, musing over this, that, and the other out there, you're getting caught, you're drawn out. Buddha says, well, use the example, you get a stake, you ram it into the ground, you tie six animals to it, you tie those animals to that stake, they strain this way, that way, eventually they give up and they sit down. So in this way, mindfulness immersed in the body is the stake, 
you ram that into the ground, mindfulness immersed in the body, and to that stake you tether, seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, smelling, and thinking. Even the sense, the external sense of the body's touch, be careful with that. We can get caught up, obviously, stroking and fondling each other, for example. So you're just pulling it back, holding it, and it dies down. Eventually it will pull this way, that way, but you keep that stake steady. And you know that's for your welfare and safety, that's your refuge. That's the thing you're going to fall with, you're going to die with, when the rest of this stuff has moved on. <laughs> when the sight is gone, and the sound is gone, and the lovely taste is gone, you're left with this. If you haven't developed this, you know, you just wasted a lifetime chasing butterflies. So you develop that. It's not saying you can't see anything, hear anything, taste anything, touch it. You can. But you're just resisting that pull. You feel the pull. You know the pull. Then, you see, then you've got safe environment because it's monitored, administered by mindfulness of the body, not by disapproval of the senses, but knowing, like playful children, they have to be guided, steadied, like a dog, but it's calming, steady, then it's going to be fine. So, sense restraint, something very relevant for all of us, probably something you've got to really, as lay folks in the world, you've got to keep there as a reminder because it's certainly, everything's out to grab. Everything's out to grab. Advertisements, signs, sounds, flashy things, impulses. This is the way a wonderful world lies out there if you buy one of these. <laughs> New, advanced, great, fantastic. Oh, don't buy that. My feeling is you have to put that bigger label on it to sell it. It can't be much good. Good soup, you don't need to put a label on. A wise person, that's that is good. Monasteries, in some ways, you've got a big advantage because it's built in. Sense traits built in. There's nothing much to really get fascinated by. And, um, but then this does throw the, to light the internal signaling. That's kind of, uh, say, the blessing, but the challenge of uh, monastic life, sangha life. Because there's no, there's less possibility to divert. You know, to just go out, to take the pressure off. Because what we're beginning to recognize is that those hindrances arise from a certain quality. Something's not fulfilled, so it's searching. Something's under pressure, so it's slightly restless and edgy. Something kind of wants to just get out of here, so it's sort of, we kind of go dozy at times and numb out. What's that? What's that? Well, in a nutshell, it's called ignorance. Ignorance, by its definition, is something you can't see. 
is the bit you don't see. But based upon that, that, and it's not just not having the information, it's just something is not completely in touch, not settled, not established, not clear, not something's occluded, blocked. Um, and because of that, you don't feel quite right on an intimate level. So something is surging, for something to lift me, warm me, infuse me, something. Some feel slightly funny, but can I get rid of that? Irritable. Yeah. Or something just wants to numb out. Like, oh, just cough. Zonk in front of the television, just let it all go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course, then, these are just kind of, this is what we call it latent tendencies, dormant tendencies. And in uh, monastic life, <laughs> The aim of it is actually to bring these out. You do a, you do a meditation retreat, in a way that's the same thing. Because you're living under a pretty restrained environment. Not just restraining what you can't do, but also it's four o'clock, it's you getting up. Not when I feel like it. Oh. You're getting up. Not when you feel like it. Oh. You're going to the meditational, not when you feel like it, but now. You're chanting these chants, not when you feel like it, but now. With these people, not the ones you want to be with, but this lot. (laughs) But actually, it'd be quite nice to have a morning of my own. All the choices are getting cut off. There's something about those choices, those instinctive choices, where we can go, Reach out for a cuppa, ah, just switch something on, that's no problem, I think I'll take a look at this, that, and the other. Something about those choices, who's making those choices? Where's they coming from? They're kind of subtle attempts to alleviate the pressures and the vacuities in our, in our wiring. Don't pick me up for a little something to just divert. You don't really notice it until you can't do it. And then you notice it. I feel kind of intense. I feel kind of intense. I don't know what I'm intense about. I just feel intense. Yeah, Yeah, so... I remember it was quite surprising because I was kind of fairly, before I became a monk, I was kind of fairly easygoing, kind of relaxed kind of guy. When I got to monk, I just didn't realise how much capacity I had to feel angry, <laughs> frustrated. What about? I just feel really intense. From the pressure. What's the pressure? What's the pressure on? Why am I going to do the morning chanting? Well, so what? Nothing wrong with that. Chanting is just chanting. No, it's not. It's I've got to do the chanting now. The pressure. The signal of compelled, pressurized, obligated, can't do it my way. That's the signal that's happening. Ding, 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 ding. And then... 
do this. I can't do this. You won't find out how to do it. I don't know how to do it. Find out. Oh, that signal of, oh, I'm hopeless. I'm lost on my own. I need somebody to help me. Somebody tell me what to do, please. <laughs> Feeling frustrated and useless because normally I do the things I'm good at, not the things I'm not good at. When I see life, it's often the case you can't do the things you're good at. You know, maybe I was a massage therapist, we don't do that here. Do some carpentry. Huh? Carpentry? What's a saw? Find out. <laughs> so you get these kind of hopeless, what am I doing this stupid? It's to sew robes. I never sewed a rope, I never sewed anything as a lay person. And to sew these robes, how do you sew them? Oh, Oh, is a sewing machine? What's a sewing machine? Oh, you'll, you'll figure it out. Uh, robe? Get this bit of cloth. Here's a, here's a plan. Just cut this cloth up and stitch it together. Sewing machine. Uh, switch? Right, switch? Needle? Thread? Thread tension? Stitch? What's that? Oh, oh it's broken. How come I spent all day just trying to figure out how this machine works? Why couldn't I just get one off the shelf? Get a robe off the... We've got these spare robes. Give me a spare robe out of the store cover. Just be reasonable. Now make your own. But why? Because it's traditional. <laughs> Just the kind of answer I love. <laughs> See, it's kind of frustrated, angry, annoyed with yourself, upset. Is it really such a vicious thing to do? To ask somebody to serve her? Is it really a sign of ill will and hostility and hatred? No. So why am I getting this aggressive feeling? Because I put it outside my comfort zone, I start to get spiky. Or I start to collapse and whimper. Then I start to moan and complain. and feel sorry for myself. Oh, this is embarrassing. And then gradually you start to, okay, what's happening? You realize, yeah, that's, that's all that's the way it goes. What's happening? Tracking system's okay, but you've been following the wrong map. Yeah. For most of your life, you've been following this map which says, go this way, the easy way, the way I like. That's the way to drive. Go the easy way, the way I like. Avoid those complicated. Just go the way I like. That's the map. I'm following that map. And now it's taken me into this kind of zone. I followed this map which said, this is the straight highway, get you there instantly. And now I can't do it. Now I'm getting angry. Yeah. I followed this map which says, there's a book will tell you exactly what to do. Where's the book? Is in the book. Find out. Yeah. I'm following the wrong map. <coughs> so then you get the of course then you get the meditation manual. Sit down, sit up straight, focus on your breathing, breathing in, breathing out, stay with that, let go of the hindrances, then we get to jhana, pretty sukha, rapture and ease, bliss, Look at it with insight, Nishtukanata, bomb, there you are, sorted. <laughs> so you go, okay, 
Break down breath. Breath, what breath? Struggling, finding, trying to get it done. Trying to do it. Trying to get focused. Trying to get focused. Yes. Can't do it. You're following the wrong driver. Wrong map. Instant highway. Wrong driver. Driver called me. That's not going to do it for you. That driver lives in your head. She's not going to get you anywhere. You're using the wrong driver, going on the wrong map. You've got to use something much more intuitive, much more felt, much more embodied. Something you probably haven't used very much because you've been living in your head. That's been driving you. You've been following the books, the signs, the words, the ideas, the thoughts, your own thoughts, other people's thoughts. You're following all that. It's the wrong driver on the wrong map. No wonder you're getting into trouble. No wonder you're getting angry and upset. No wonder you feel like a failure, an idiot, can't do it, because you're the wrong map, wrong driver. So you hear these stories uh, in some we we in a monastery in England, we live up a quite a narrow country lane. It's about six foot six wide. Which is fine unless you're driving a seven foot wide lorry. <laughs> <laughs> you see them stuck there. <laughs> the driver sitting there fuming, <laughs> looking at his GPS. His satellite system, which on the satellite system is a road. So there is. There is a road. On the sat nav, there's a road. There is a road. It just happens to be no, too narrow for your truck. <laughs> and you read these stories of truckers getting stuck up, you know, up the dirt track because they're following a, a road that actually didn't exist anymore. How many times do we do that? Or you're on a walk, you've got to walk, particularly while I was in India, it's a really interesting experience of maps, which is so out of date. There's a map, there's no road there. On the map, there's this nice line, nothing there. <laughs> it's eventually just kind of, okay, well, find somebody, say, where's this, where's that? And they just shrug their head and ask you what, where you came from. And they say, is it this way, is it? Yes. Or is it that way? Yes. Because <laughs> you could go that way, or that way, or any way, depending on how you want to go. So eventually, right, okay, so just uh, fumble around, go up that way, get it wrong, turn around, go back again, fumble that way, look around at the sky, see where the other people are walking, and it looks like it's probably over there, and just fumble along. <laughs> yeah. But if you were operating a sat nav, you'd be going crazy by then. So this is really like the spiritual path is like this. Yeah. To follow your embodied intelligence. And when it starts to sink or crash, you've got to pause. Maybe the problem is not your fault, not somebody else's fault. Wrong map, wrong driver. You probably have this idea of getting it done. Wrong message. 
I'll just get behind his sun machine and get this road done. Yeah, knock this one out. By the end of it, yeah, I'll get this done. Get this done. Yeah, I should get this done. It's not getting done. I haven't got it done. Wrong speed. <laughs> what you do, you sit down quietly, calm yourself, look around, check out the system, check out the machine here. Get a bit of thread, see where the needle is. All the time in the world, you've got to get that thread through the needle. No point trying to get it done. No point asking somebody else to do it. No point complaining. You've got to get that thread through the needle. So you do that. You do that first. You do that. You feel, oh, I have succeeded in that. Gradually, that's how you do it. It's very much a step at a time. It's bringing you right back. You're getting off the map, you're getting the driver out of your head, you're getting your foot off the accelerator. Yeah, that's this is called the right way to progress. Because there's no progress by going forward, there's no progress by standing still. Progress is a matter of tuning in to balance, purity, clarity, and sustaining it, and letting it carry you. It carries you beyond your internal maps, your internal ideas, your self-programs, your defence strategies, your diversion reflexes, your distraction mechanisms, your aggressive attitudes, your self-image about what you are and what you aren't. Your issues with other people, your fear of authority, your fear of intimacy or whatever. You begin to get through all this stuff, these latent tendencies. It's the map to emptiness, openness, space, freedom. It's a map that's never been drawn. But you feel it through understanding, very simply speaking, just where the dukkha is and where it ceases. And that's what you can trust. So in this life you make an effort and uh, the effort is to, well, keep the sense of restraint, keep vigilant, Stay vigilant, find the balance, calm, investigate where the suffering and stress really is, and refer to what can release it. If you look very intimately, just the process of any kind of stress, hindrance, agitation, you can find out your thinking mind can't release it. It can analyse it, it can explain why it's there, it can blame it very rapidly on yourself and on others, your past and so forth. Your thinking mind doesn't do release, it does addition, it does commentary, it does explanation, it does critiques, it doesn't do release. If you're relying upon that to get you released, you're getting the wrong driver. So you might focus on your moods and feelings. 
Well, that's not going to get you very far because they're going to want to go to pleasant feeling. And you're not going to get very far if you can only manage pleasant feeling. You've got to be able to manage unpleasant feeling. Not just physical, but psychological unpleasant feeling. To feel, you know, the sadness, or the loneliness, or the inadequacy, and, okay, that's that. Uh Not reacting, or blaming, or proliferating around it. Emotions are like this, and you can read them. So what do you have left? You go with it behind that. The reflexes in your body, energies in your body, they know how to release. They're built in. Every one of us who's ever run a race and sat down at the end of it found out how the body perfectly knows how to let go. Anybody who's given birth, any woman who's given birth, immense struggle and pressure realises the body certainly knows how to push and struggle and also how to oh, let go it does it perfectly <laughs> yeah. that's what it does so we need to refer to that system humbly constantly impersonally that's the one that can do it. That's the driver. That's the territory. That's the map. So we can keep this with us all the time, all the day, every situation. It's very portable. So this is why the Buddha taught it, because it's relevant for everyone. Whichever walk of life you're in, you've experienced the same process, the same criteria, the same remedies. Monasteries, because they tend to keep repeating it, are great places to keep coming to for reminders and companionship, environment you can trust. You don't feel apprehensive or judged, uh, seduced or, or threatened. That's a great environment for you to understand your inner environment and work towards clearing it your own welfare, your liberation, and for the welfare of others. So my encouragement for your practice.